you play the two-handed game, yes, you must be having top song. Second-handed love I can see. It's good for some, but not for me. You can be mine, baby, if somebody else is too. At first, I thought the text you sent me was one of those gag texts. You know, like like someone had had sent me an image. It's just like, oh no, no, this is it's a gag. It's a gag. And then fan made, right? right? Fan made. And then 15 minutes later, the internet dropped a trailer for Clerks 3. And all my worst fears were confirmed. Uh-oh. <laughs> now, now let me be clear. Kevin Smith, very seminal filmmaker for, for you and I, for our generation. The, the first yes. Clerks movie is, is actually an extension of the 80s independent movement of, you know, racking up credit card debt, grabbing a, you know, 16 millimeter camera, going out there and making your fucking movie. Um, and I think Clerks still holds up. I think Clerks 2 is underrated because uh, it's actually a continuation of the story uh, as, you know, getting older. I know Kevin Smith is a, is a is a great person, very gregarious person to meet. He just decided that he's making the kind of movies he wants to make. I mean, how many times are you going to make the same meta joke in a row in subsequent movies? You know, and I sat through Jay and Silent Bob reboot. Mm, I, I just wow, you know. I, I, I guess he's passed me by or I've passed, you know what I mean? I mean, I'm just like, and, and again, I love him. I, I, I mean, those movies is, you know, Clerks, Clerks 2, uh, Mall Rats, which was a perfect distillation of, of 80s, you know, teen comedy, although it was really taking the clerks as two different characters and putting them in a mall. Um, but it, it worked. And, and, you know, I even, you know, I don't like all of Dogma, but a lot of dogma I really do like, uh, especially Alan Rickman. I mean, it, it's just so it, it's good. Uh, your thoughts on the announcement of Clerks Trace? Well, I sent it to you because I was having a lot of those same emotions. And um, I, I, I guess he's getting to make his Linklater trilogy. This is his like before trilogy, right, Jeff? I mean, this is Clerks, though. You know, Clerks, I agree with you. Clerks 2 was underrated. And so I, I'm like, okay. Well, he's certainly self-aware. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, he's, he's you were meta his- and mocking himself. He is, he is self-aware. He is aware of what he is doing. So... You know, you either trust him or you don't, but it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting, um, I can make a very interesting connector to uh, Clerks 3 back to Rio Bravo. Just remind me before we're done and I can tie it in. Oh, I'm making a note as we speak. Good. (laughs) I cannot wait. Gonna blow your mind. Gonna blow your mind. Uh, We're to uh, Lonely PhDs. I'm Dr. Jeffrey Hayes. He's Dr. Joseph Watson. We, uh... We sit around and, uh, you know, shoot the breeze about these here films. We choose a couple films every week and uh, go through it. Clerks 3 is not our choice for the week. It just was the news that was dropped uh, on us uh, over this 4th of July uh, 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 weekend. James Conn died like uh, two hours ago. Did you see that on the uh, 
I, I did. I noticed yeah. that before we got on and I was like, well, we'll have to make a note of that and yeah, talk about ne- that later on. We'll yeah. have to come back next week to that. I got to, I got to process that a little bit, man. Jimmy Khan. Yeah. yeah. I hope they're pouring yeah. one out for him in the playboy grotto. That's all I can. That's all, that's all I can think to, uh, to R. myself. No. Yeah, man. Uh, this week, we have watched uh, two interesting uh, uh, films. Uh, Dr. Watson watched uh, uh, Rio Bravo, Howard Hawks film. What year is that? Is that 58? 59. It's 59. And then uh, I watched, it only took me five episodes to get to a film noir. I feel pretty proud about myself. <laughs> it's your it's your jam it's your it's my you know, it's, jam it's my obsession it's my hobby is it your favorite genre is it your favorite genre uh we can get into that yeah well, well I'll, oh, I'll talk okay. a little bit more about that but you know right. uh i watched the blue dahlia not the black dahlia the blue dahlia uh uh with uh alan ladd and uh veronica lake that's it that's what it is. you also texted me did you did you play some pickup basketball this week? Yeah, Jeff, do you still hoop? Very rarely. <laughs> I prefer to drink. So, yeah. Okay, me too. So uh, we had the in-laws here uh, this weekend and mm-hmm. uh, this, this week, really. And uh, so all the kids were out there. Mm-hmm. And, of course, uh, one of them is 17. One of them is 20. They're both, you know, kind of trash talkers. And uh, even the 12, soon to be 13 year old daughter was kind of trash talking pops. Right. And they were challenging me to a game of horse. So I get mm-hmm. out there. There's like five or six people playing the game. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's like you mm-hmm. got to weed out the it's like, OK, this person's that's a lot of people concerned. for horse. I got to be honest. Like that's- It was a long game. It was yeah. this is like an hour and a half commitment. Keep in mind, we're playing at like 11 o'clock at night, too. Right. I mean, I've got like, the- well, because because it's it's finally like 85 degrees. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah. And it's I mean, summertime, right? It, it, so it's, it's what you do. So, in it's so hot here in Alabama. Like, I don't even want to drink. Like, I just, I just want to lay on the couch and sip water and and rub my stomach and just go, dear Lord, when will it rain? <laughs> it is very miserable, right? Very miserable. So uh, six six kids playing, and you have to sort of weed off the people who you know, you're like, okay, they're going to be easy. They're going to be easy. They're going to be easy. Right. It's really down to me and the 17 year old and the 20 year old. Right. And the 20 year old and the 17 year old don't understand pop strategy. Right. Because I love basketball, Jeff. I have, you know, I watch it all the time. I, I, I watch movies like fish at safe Pittsburgh. I, you know, I have a hoop outside. I have the chain net. Ain't nothing like when you swish and you hear that chain rent, there's nothing like that. Right. So what they don't know about pops is that, you know, every now and then I'll just go out there and I got four to six set shots. You know, they're out here trying to launch from like the roof, you know, trying to make some like Larry Bird, Michael Jordan, McDonald's commercial they're, from they're the looking 80s, for their, you know, like, They're looking for their TikTok moment. They're, right. And, yeah. Exactly. That's exactly yeah. what it is. And, and they may get lucky and hit those shots. Right. But I'm just out here like 20 footer, 18 footer. <laughs> 12 footer like they can't they can't do it right and then i kill them because my killer spot is in the corner right mm-hmm. so it took an hour and a half just wore them down just making those like jumpers you know until boom h-o-r-s-e baby pops is the winner you know mm-hmm. strategy mm-hmm. always mm-hmm. wins out right 
So, so, so for more, it made me just realize that. So now you're like the, uh, the Spike Lee character in the <laughs> updated Nike commercials with yeah. the young upstart athletes playing the chess, yeah. playing the chess, Mars Blackman, Mars Blackman. That's right. Yeah. Money. It's money. You should have seen their faces, man. It was like, you know, they groaned when I went to the corner, Jeff, and you to, did. to mark my shot. I just Larry birded that thing all the way. It was beautiful. Chain net sound. Awesome. It was awesome. So movies. Yes. Thank yes. you for letting me share that. Yes. I will. Uh, I'll go first uh, this week. Go for it. Yeah. Uh, so Blue Dahlia. Yeah. Directed by George Marshall. Uh, George Marshall was his filmography is insane. Like he, he was, he's one of those true studio journeyman directors like that. The studios would pass around. Like they knew that they needed like someone who's number one, going to get it done. Number two is going to bring it in on budget. And number three is not going to put up any fight like whatsoever. Uh, this efficiency so efficient, uh, really made his name, uh, in comedies, uh, started back as far as he, he even directed some uh, Abbott and Costello shorts. Um, so really, yeah, really interesting filmography. Um, but on top of that, uh, this is this is, of course, a, a, a film noir, crime noir. Um, there's two other very fascinating uh, uh, elements to this, at least I think so. Uh, the DP, the director of photography on this is Lionel Linden. Lionel Linden would go, would go, have a very 50 year career as a DP in Hollywood. Again, very dependable person, kind of a Lucian Ballard type person. He shot for Ida Lupino. He shot for Michael Curtiz. He shot for John, he shot John Frankenheimer's Grand Prix, which has insane that the, the racing sequences in Grand Prix are insane. Uh, he shot that film. He shot a film for Robert Wise. He shot a film for John Cassavetes. Um, just a real, I, I, I was in doing research for this film. I was just like, how, how had I not watched this? Like, once again, the, 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 the vault of film noir is so deep, both domestically and internationally. I mean, I could watch and I, and I, I, this past winter, when I was cataloging everything that I was watching, in, in the month of February, I watched 30 noir films. 30. Wow. Still had no idea like, about the blue. I, not even close. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not even close. Like you, you go down this rabbit hole and it's just like you cannot begin to. I, in fact, I, I remember I texted you at one point. I was just like, Ray, I did, Raymond Burr, Perry Mason was one of the most sought after villains in all of film noir filmmaking. He, he made his bones at, and he is fantastic. Like in his film noirs. I mean, he is so, he brings so much gravity. It's just, it's, it's amazing. So Lionel uh, Linden, if, if you get a chance, look him, look up his Wikipedia, list all his films. It's just absolutely amazing. Uh, George Marshall also, um, so, so the Blue Dahlia also uh, uh, marks the only time that uh, uh, Raymond Chandler writes an original screenplay. Uh, everything else is adapted. This is specifically written for the screen. Uh, it had a lot of problems, uh, as most Raymond Chandler 
adaptations and, and really Dashiell Hammett too. Like any of the Pulp Noir stuff had a lot of baggage to it um, and infamously so, but this one even more so because uh, Chandler was a real bad alcoholic. Uh, and I was doing my research on this, on, on this, on Blue Dahlia. Uh, he, he was getting so whacked out. Like he, he would take uh, glucose was the only thing he would take like shots of glucose from the doctor. And that was the only like food in his body. Like he would just drink constantly. Um, but he would turn in his pages. Like, even though at one point they were 33 pages, the story goes, they were like 33 pages short on it. And he, he still would, you know, he would still pump it out and still get it there. Uh, unfortunately what that leaves for the audience though, is, is the typical problems with a Raymond Chandler or a, 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 a Dashiell Hammett uh, a type uh, story, very convoluted, uh, way too many plot points, uh, way too many characters. Uh, I, I, the, the basic premise, okay, so the basic premise of Blue Dahlia is this, three former World War II vets come back home to LA and they stop at the bar uh, to have a drink before going their own way. You know, one of them, uh, the Alan Ladd character, his name is Johnny. He says he's got a wife. Uh, his other two compatriots don't. So they're just going to like live together in an apartment, you know, like a tenement in LA and, you know, figure things out uh, post-war. And one of them's got like a head plate, you know, he's, he's got massive like PTSD, which, uh, you, you know, I, I give film noir a lot of credit for this they deal with PTSD a lot. Like a lot of film noirs deal with like veterans and PTSD before that was ever, you know, really even a thing. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's, it's a good character subplot in the blue Dahlia, but unfortunately it has some, I'll get to that in a second. Um, so anyway, these three guys made in, in John, Johnny, the, the Alan Ladd character goes home, huge raging party going on. His wife is there. Uh, she, of course, is surprised to see him, uh, and is, of course, with another man. So, you know, Johnny, not, not thrilled, uh, uh, by this and, uh, of course, uh, confronts the man, uh, and, uh, he catches, he catches, uh, them kissing and he jerks open the front door and he gets to say one of those great, you know, uh, uh, Raymond Chandler lines, you got the wrong lipstick on and pops him in the face, you know, um, nice. Yeah, that's 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 the other thing about like 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 these pulpy like noirs. It's the are always so like you know I better blow like stuff you know stuff like that. I mean stuff that the Coens would dig very deep into when they were doing uh, you know Miller's Crossing or uh, Hudsucker Proxy or even Barton Fink. You know any anytime they've done their their quote unquote period pieces, they've you know dug very deep in that well of noir and um uh uh 40s slang but but anyway uh uh you know comes to find out that his wife's been cheating on him so she's he's gonna leave her you know uh find out that you know she's the reason that their young child was killed died uh in a drunk driving accident um oh yeah and then you know uh um <laughs> and then twists and turns ensue and we've got a murder and we got to figure out who murdered the wife so, you know, enter like 17 characters. Like it's, it's just, 
you know, it's just, it's just, it's typical basically from there, like, you know, MacGuffins and crosses and uh, all, you know, all of this. I, I, I don't think it's, it's even for an original screenplay by uh, Chandler, I, I, I don't think it, it rises above anything. I mean, if you've seen The Big Sleep or you've seen The Maltese Falcon or you, you, you know what you're in for, like there, there's nothing it's super formulaic you know but i will say if it's your first one uh it definitely would hook you you know because it's it's so hyper stylized and for people who you know noir noir in the right hands at the right time period was just super stylized and wonderful again this is why you have this you know you have an amazing dp who understands how to light it how to shoot it and i guess we should explain would you explain you're better at this than me would you explain what a director of photography is because you've actually worked with them uh when i've filmed things i've had to be my own dp so you know Ooh, yeah well it's 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 different each time but what you want to create is a relationship with the dp if you're directing right because mm -hmm. that individual is basically choreographing your shot uh, executing your shot, determining uh, the lighting, um, uh, consulting, if not designing mise-en-scene, like the arrangement of everything in the frame. Uh, the director of photography can also consult on blocking at times, like where actors are going to walk or sit or turn their heads even. I mean, it can get that specific. So the you, you know, it's a huge collaboration, Jeff. It really is. And, and, you know, I've seen it where the DP is the one really running the show and the director is just kind of mildly involved. And, and then I've seen it the complete opposite where the director is really demanding and the DP is mm -hmm. arguing. And so it's, it's a contentious relationship, but I would say it's collaborative more than anything else should be. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and again, for people, you know, these, these are the people that are there early setting things up, putting the camera on the you know tracks, or if it's hand, you know, if it's handheld or dolly or whatever, they're the ones that are doing that. Like they're and directing the traffic for sure. They're directing yes. the traffic, checking the light, making sure it matches. Uh, it's just a monumental task. And DP your first AD is there, your first assistant director, and usually even your second or your third, if you have, you know, assist, your camera operators are there, mm -hmm. your gaffers, your grips. I mean, it's, it's just a collaboration is what I try to stress when I teach this stuff. And you know, this, mm -hmm. I know you, you, you yes, do it yes. as well, but you know, I just, I tell the students all the time, I'm just like, mm -hmm. you can't do it alone, man. You just, you just can't, you have to have a team, you know, and it has to be collaborative has to be. Yeah. And that's why we, we do spend time with students a lot of times. And, and actually I talk to this with just people in general, when I have film conversations, you know, we, cause it's easy to get attached to auteur theory uh, or auteurs, you know, and, and I fall into that trap too. I'll, I'll get to talking about Stanley Kubrick or, you know, Scorsese or all that's just like, it takes a village people. I mean, they've got vision, but it's just like, there's, you know, 37 people running around every single day before, you know, the director steps on set, you know, to, to, to do the, the shooting that needs to be done or at least attempted for the day. You asked me earlier about what it is about film noir. It's, it's like a weighted blanket almost to me. Like it's, it's, I like watching 
because it's a, it's an interesting mix because sometimes the studios would put a lot of money behind them and then a lot of times you end up with something like detour which is <laughs> the most infamous low budget film noir ever you know and it was basically pieced together um and it still works yeah. <laughs> on some level you know um there's just something about there are rules to it there there's you know it's Los Angeles, but it's not Los Angeles. And, and the original noirs are, are really about Los Angeles. Now, if you, you start getting to the European stuff, that, that gets a little dicey, you know, um, especially the British stuff, Hitchcock doing some, um, you know, you've got, of course, the infamous The Third Man, uh, uh, also, which takes place in Middle Europe. But, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, there's just something so admirable about the way to that they came up with a visual language in that it somehow remained consistent for 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 decades mm -hmm. it's a language it really is and and all of those films within that genre even the ones that bend into neo-noir you know i mean things mm -hmm. like brick or you know i mean those movies um they share that language and it is, you're right. It's a visual language. It's to a certain extent, it's a narrative language as well, because they're, you know, recurring thematics and things that happen in, in those stories. And when I, when I um, introduce this to the students, this particular genre, when I'm teaching like story or genre in that part of the mm -hmm. class and we get to film noir, I usually say um, that my framework for discussion is, okay, this is post-World War II and it's depression America. Like yeah. it's gonna work exactly the opposite of the way that that particular period of history has been romanticized by you know, film and in uh, so many other forms of media, but it works counterintuitively to that, you know, and mm -hmm. you're gonna be grappling with as many, I mean, my God, when you just outlined the plot, you know, it's like so much shit happens in that yeah. story that's dark and, and depressing and conflict riddled and double crossing and all of those, nobody you can trust, you know, right. it's such an antithetical message mm -hmm. that you got to be prepared for that. And I tell, you know, the students that my first exposure to film noir was Chinatown. And then eventually the big sleep was the next one that I saw. And in some ways, I guess you could say that I started out with the darkest with Chinatown, <laughs> right? <laughs> did. And then go back to, you know, because I saw the big sleep in a film history class, right? And as an undergraduate in college. And so, and then, and then the doors were open, right? And I just started exploring and, and watching all kinds of, of film noir. But you had to be, I think students today, you know, if anything, the neo-noir, the newer stuff is, is still very good in, in, in many respects. But if you want to capture a period of American history as well, you watch film noir from this era because it's it's got an authenticity to it right and it's and it's connected to the visual language and the narrative yes. stuff that we're talking about well also also the the the, the pre and post it's it's one of the genres that actually links pre and post war america mm -hmm. uh, you know uh and it's reflected in that you know actually we can go back like you said we can actually go back to depression uh era america but you know i mean it's it, it it's connective tissue over the decades is is just astounding when you when you just sit down and you start thinking about it um i will point out um that the 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 two problematics for the modern audience 
uh, with the blue dahlia would would probably be uh, one, of course, the treatment of women. Um, and this is something you have to be ready for in film noir because women get slapped around, women get mistreated, get called horrible names. They're often villainized, the femme fatale. Uh, rarely are they the hero. <laughs> Uh, although I, you know, I've always argued, I, that's why I like Mildred Pierce so much. Like mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's one of the rare Fantastic. occasions, such a good movie. Fantastic um, movie. It's, it's amazing. I highly recommend that to people. Um, and then we have a recurring line in the film from the, from the vet who got the head damage. He's got a plate in his head. Anytime he hears jazz music, he says, for God's sakes, turn off that monkey music. And yeah, wow. this is repeated many times. And I'm pretty sure there was probably a worse line. <laughs> and somebody made a really good decision. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. So those are some problematics with the, uh, that modern audiences might find uh, with the Blue Dahlia. But again, as, as we always advise people every week, we, we always talk about context and, and, and this is part of it, kids. You know, not everyone was great. Not, you know, society wouldn't really blink at a white man saying that at all in a film and be like, yeah, he's right. You know, just they, you'd be surprised uh, at, at the amount uh, of that. I'm Dr. Jeffrey Hayes. He's Dr. Joseph Watson. We are two lonely PhDs and we are talking about films. I just got wrapped up uh, talking about the Blue Dahlia, talking about film noir. Started off with a long tirade about Clerks 3, which I'm sure we'll come around to again. This is going to be a great episode, Jeff. Great uh, episode. September. Can't wait. Might, might be a little longer, but you know, than, than normal, but we got a lot to say. So yes, yes. Uh, uh, <laughs> Dr. Watson, this week you watched an absolute classic, Rio Bravo. Yeah, I, you know, I felt like uh, that I just need to kind of knock some of these out of the park, right? Yeah. Um, uh, because they're so ingrained and I've moved past them, mm -hmm. you know, years ago, but I, but I always come back to them as like, Oh, it all goes back to Rio Bravo or it all, you know, it all goes back to that. So let me take you back in time for a minute. Okay. Uh, this is uh, late seventies uh, kids. There were four channels on TV, maybe five, if you could get the UHF to work. Um, and at 1030 on Saturday nights, before the station, the TV station went off the air because there mm -hmm. used to be a time, kids, when there was no media after a certain period of the evening on television. The American flag. There was, yeah, no, was there was no internet. There was no devices. You just went to sleep. Um, but at 1030, uh, they had uh, a movie. And sometimes they would do a double feature, right? Mm -hmm. This was a big deal to me because... They were usually mostly westerns when I was growing up as a kid, right? And we, mm -hmm. but I, but I got to watch all of these movies from you know 30s, 40s, 50s, growing up because it was a treat for me. You know, I got to stay up late on a Saturday night, but I had to get up and be ready for church the next day. All right, so um, it was in this context that I first saw Rio Bravo, mm -hmm. and I think if we're talking westerns, 
this one makes I think most anybody's top five list. Why is that? Maybe. Is it is it is it because it's it's the most accessible, the most entertaining? Especially, I love the the beginning of the film is infamous, you know, because it's it's no no dialogue uh, introduces practically almost I think all of the main characters uh, in that first five or seven minutes. It's it's almost like a dance. It's fantastic orchestration and choreography from the master Howard Hawks, right? I mean, mm -hmm. who uh, is a director that worked successfully in I think just about every genre. And um, in this context in 1959, he had not made a film since 1955. He made mm -hmm. Land of the Pharaohs, mm -hmm. it was not a success and it was very depressing for him. And so Rio Bravo, uh, was his 41st film wow. and he was 62 years old mm. when he directed this movie. Uh, it was shot outside Tucson, Arizona. They constructed sets. Production costs adjusted for today would have been around $2 million. So, mm -hmm. So what is Rio Bravo, Jeff? Okay, so it's a, it's a siege story mm -hmm. uh, at the end of the day. It's got the, th the thematic of standing up for justice and a a ruthless, lawless time of the West, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you had very clear-cut good guys, bad guys. Mm -hmm. Sheriff John T. Chance, played by John Wayne, is the uh, is the sheriff who has, uh, he has one of the Burdett boys in custody for murder. And when Chance refuses to turn him free, the Burdett boys promise they will be back to take him no matter what. <laughs> so aided by his deputies, dude, who's played by Dean Martin, who's the uh, recovering alcoholic. Stumpy, played by the wonderful Walter Brennan. Oh, uh, Stumpy! I just love Stumpy, man. And a young sharpshooting gunslinger named Colorado, played by an 18-year-old Ricky Nelson. Yeah. Howard Hawks originally wanted Elvis, but that did not work out. So Ricky Nelson got got the, got the got the go. I guess the, I so, guess the colonel uh, I guess the colonel just uh, had disagreements. Uh, the colonel wanted Elvis to have top billing and more money, and Howard Hawks said no. I, not not surprised. Yep. <laughs> uh, so um, Sheriff Chance isn't, of course, going to give an inch at all, and um, so he's in between managing this new crisis. Uh, Chance is also, um, you know, flirting with uh, feathers who is played by the amazing Angie Dickinson in this movie. Who, who, uh, who, who's so young in it. She looks unrecognizable. Like if, if I, I know I, I I'm watching it, she's in the credits and I'm and I'm looking at her and I'm going, that's not Angie Dickinson. And it's just like, it is Angie Dickinson. She just, she was probably 25, 26, I think. At, at yeah. She was in her twenties. Yeah. Uh, Ford was in his fifties. And he was a little concerned about the flirtation dialogue and the love stuff. John Wayne was a little concerned about it, but yeah. it's played very well. It really is. It's good dialogue and it's played very well. It's really more of a flirtation than it is uh, anything else. And it's, it's, it's fun. But uh, so, yeah. So you mentioned this opening sequence, right. In this movie. So eventually mm -hmm. folks, you know, that there's, there's a showdown coming, right. The Burdett boys are coming back. John Wayne's got to defend the town uh, against, you know, uh, large numbers, right? He's going to mm -hmm. be, he's going to be the underdog, right? Um, so uh, there's, there is that opening sequence, Jeff, where there's absolutely no dialogue. And what's beautiful about it is that everything in the town 
and all of the characters is just established for you in that short amount of time. And now I look at it and go, wow, that was like a four and a half, five minute sequence. How did he get away oh, yeah. with that? Because modern audiences would have like walked out right mm-hmm. at this point. Right. Because, but I'm just like, he sets up everything so that you get this sense of immediacy and tension. And, you know, the, the bad guys are coming and this is limited space that we've right. been given here to operate. Right. Uh, as, as, uh, as audiences. So, um, I really wanted, there's so many things you could talk about in this movie, but I really wanted to just focus on one thing, which is the the use of space, because you so get a sense of the jail, the saloon, the hotel, the dark street that connects them in the middle of the night. You know, we are, we are made so aware of where things are positionally in the town. Mm -hmm. And he just refuses to use close-ups. He wants medium shots He wants long shots so that you really get a sense of the space, the confinement. Everyone is in front of a window or a frame or doorway or something is just confined in this in this movie. And I think that's really it amps the tension. uh, And at the same time, you get that sense of entrapment. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's the secret sauce to building suspense and tension in most every action horror movie or anything. It all comes down to territorial space, you know, and what we're what we're allowed to, to navigate in. Um, so that's that's really, the, I think, the thing that stands out to me on the recent rewatch is just that the way that that's built by Hawks. Right. Um, and of course, you, you know, that. Showdown's coming. John Wayne's going to win. He's the he's the hero, and that's sure. that's unquestionable, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, what what is interesting about that, Jeff, with this movie is that John Wayne and Howard Hawks specifically responded to this. They wanted to make this movie in response to Gary Cooper's 1952 movie High Moon, High Noon, where in High Noon, Gary Cooper is the sheriff who's facing similar circumstances as. John Wayne's character is in Rio Bravo, but in Gary Cooper's town, nobody wants to help him, right? right? Everybody leaves the town and runs away, and he's the lone sheriff standing there in high noon at the end, and John Wayne thought that was just crap. Like, that's ridiculous. Everyone knows that you help the hero, and everyone in the town and everyone in the community would help the hero, and that's what happens in Rio Bravo because it's just, it's unquestionable that Sheriff Chance is our hero and our, you know, representation of good and justice, right? Yeah. It's just so clear. It's Greek almost in that way, right? Well, the, um, the Duke must have really hated Once Upon a Time in the West. Like, he must have really, really hated that movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so here we go, all right? right. And here's my, here's my wraparound to Clerks 3. Oh. This, this is literally what I have... As my, as my final point here, we keep seeing this story told and retold. We keep seeing this story told and retold. So Real Bravo was written by Lee Brackett, who was actually a female screenwriter, but yes. got a lot of work because people thought in the industry thought she was a man. So they, you know, they, they hired her. Um, and then they're like, oh, she's good. She also worked on such diverse classics, kids as The Big Sleep and The Empire Strikes Back. Yep. Hawks himself 
retold this story, remade this story twice. Once as El Dorado in 1966 with Robert Mitchum replacing the Dean Martin role, basically. And again as Rio Lobo in 1970. Now, there's a great scene in the movie Get Shorty where Chili Palmer, played by John Travolta, explains the breakdown of all three of these films in a very funny way. And so while I was connecting all these dots, I said, well, 1972, that was around the time that John Carpenter talked about being at USC and having Howard Hawks come in to the school. And not long after that is when Carpenter wrote the Anderson Alamo, which would eventually become Assault on Precinct 13. And that Mm -hmm. was essentially carrying the same story forward. Only Carpenter is using Rio Bravo with Night of the Living Dead and a little Once Upon a Time in the West mix in. And, you know, to further prove my point here, Lee Brackett is also the name of the sheriff character in Assault on Precinct 13. So Mm -hmm. there's one of your clues. And John T. Chance, John Wayne's sheriff character name in Rio Bravo, is a pseudonym used by John Carpenter in several films. So just like Hawks, Kevin Smith keeps retelling his same story over and over again. We keep seeing the same story. So I'm being somewhat facetious, but I'm also pointing out that... You're also being very generous. Um... Well, of course, of course. (laughs) Uh, I'm kind of teasing out something. Okay. Right. That that um, that uh, that these stories do repeat themselves. And that's, you know, one of the keys to identifying a genre is when you can just start seeing all of those narrative patterns. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can decide, oh, this took a really good detour or a different turn, you know, so that makes it kind of stand out in the genre. Um, but Rio Bravo is just so good and yes. it's just so classic Western. Um, it just has all of those elements working for it at their like prime maximum efficiency. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's entertaining. You know, Howard Hawks made entertaining movies. He mm-hmm. understood story and genre and he, he just got it. And um, you know, there's a reason why so many young filmmakers, um, you know, when they discover him, you know, like Carpenter, it was just like, wow, this guy's great. <laughs> right. That work is still influencing so many people today um, in how they, I mean, you know, Jeff, the Mandalorian is nothing but, you know, Western movies like mixed sure. and matched up. I mean, that's all it is. And they're having the, the blast the, and it's great. You know, even the soundtrack, like the, the end of course. credit <laughs> music or whatever it is. Woo-ka-cha. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, you know, why don't you just, you need to give uh, 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 Morricone some money. Yeah, some royalties. Yeah, (laughs) some royalties. But it's just, yeah, it's spaghetti westerns, you know, and it's just, it's, it's so much fun uh, to see those. um, I I guess for, you know, for appropriate use here, we can say it's just visual language, right? It's the, it's the visual language. And that makes it the connected tissue um, through through these movies. But yeah, if you haven't seen Rio Bravo, it's a, it's a really good one to start with. You know, if you're not, you know, um, if you're not a westerns person, if you haven't really liked them, or if you've never really tried them, you know, uh, you know, it's it's a decent one to start out on. I think now it's 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 in the National Film Registry, and I have to ask you, um, what do you, what do you think about the National Film Registry? Because I'm always on the fence about it because basically. For people who don't know, we we historically preserve films every year, uh, and they're voted on, and 
we catalog them. I, I'm always on the fence because I'm, I'm just kind of like, well, it, it's good and it's bad. Because, you know, again, when you're making these decisions about films, you know, the ones that don't make the cut, you know, what's going to happen to them? Yeah, uh, we talk about the National Film Registry Summit uh, when I teach film history. And, uh, you know, we talk about their role as you're outlining. And I think, you know, the committee that comprises and makes the, uh, the committee that is put together to make those decisions is, you know, about as diverse and democratic as they can make it, but they can't, you know, that they are privileging certain titles and certain works over others. And I think it's, you know, what happens when, I mean, Umberto Eco was writing about this, right. The Mm -hmm. economy of lists, you know, like we're, we're list making people. And so um, in that, effort we're going to eliminate certain things so i think as long as we're aware um of you know the institutions the individuals the people who are i mean even us right who are making these recommendations you know if we're aware of what's at stake and what you know what the politics of the situation are um then i think it's pretty safe you know but we do there is that there is always that danger of you know, we missed that one, you know, or, or we, we should have included that one. You know, there's always or, that or even honorable this, mention group <laughs> or even this film is better than these films. Right. Which is the, right. da- the danger here where, where I, I would rather be optimistic and say that the film registry operates again on that sort of, hopefully on that sort of level that I, that I feel about. It's just like, it's a gateway mm-hmm. into other films and you know, but I know, unfortunately, like I remember years ago, a blockbuster video would get a hold of the AFI top, you know, whatever. And I mean, it was just like, yeah, all right. But, you know, I mean, it was just like, and that was what was on the shelf and it was always very promoted. And I'm just like, you know, but, you know, uh, Evil Dead sitting there rotten on the shelf, you know, next to something. I'm just like, well, get the Evil Dead. Like, that's a great right. Right, great movie. It's a right. it's a groundbreaking movie of genre. Like, yeah, we 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 found others, Jeff, but we had the video store. I mean, I think um, mm-hmm. you know streaming services kind of stand in for that now. You know, I mean, you're scrolling through and you see thirty five thousand movies available. Well, you know, that's a pretty good video store, but you know, how diverse is it? How you know how are they making those decisions? You know, I see most popular and I just kind of start laughing because I'm just like, what, what does that mean? You know, what, what does that mean? 7.2 billion minutes watched of Stranger Things. What, is, what does that mean? Like, that doesn't resonate with me. Okay, I get it. A lot of people watched it. Yeah. But does that mean that it's going to go in the National Registry? I, you know, I mean, I, how, how would those evaluation tools are very, um, you know, they're fragile. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, they all have their, their liens and their weaknesses. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do it two ways. Now uh, we have a discord and we will put the link to the discord on the webpage in the show notes uh, for the podcast. Speaking of the podcast, you can pretty much subscribe and download to us anywhere. We are on Apple. We are on Google. We are on Stitcher. We are on, of course, Podbean. Thank you, Podbean for hosting us. Uh, as always, if none of those work for you, you can email us lonelyphds at gmail.com that's l-o-n-e-l-y-p-h-d-s one word 
at gmail.com because they wouldn't let me break it up when I was creating the name. Uh, I would have made this so much easier on everyone, but you know what you can do? You can just say, save it. That way you can just, you know, contact us when you need to. Yeah. But uh, we'll, we'll answer all questions there. And if you're having trouble with your Discord, we can help you there uh, out as well. I'm Dr. Jeffrey Hayes. I'm Dr. Joseph Watson. We're two lonely PhDs. We'll see you next time. You played a two-handed game. Yes, you must be having top song. Second-handed love I can see. It's good for some, but not for me. You can't be mine, baby. If somebody else is too.